Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and today we are talking all about endometriosis and treatments for fertility. So I haven't talked about endo in a long time, even though I talk about it almost daily in my clinical practice, because in the infertile population or people who seek care with a fertility doctor, endometriosis is relatively common. So today I'm going to break down a little bit about what endometriosis is, difficulties with diagnosis, but some of the main physiology. And then really we're going to talk through treatments, surgery, ovulation induction, IUI, IVF, and things that we think about. And I'm going to be giving you the take-home points from some of the studies that have been done looking at endo and fertility treatments in general. Before we dive in, I just want to touch on a few housekeeping items. First of all, every episode we have For Fertility Sake, our weekly Q&A that will be at the end of the episode. You can ask your questions Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some questions will be answered right on Instagram. Some will be answered here on the podcast and others will be answered in the newsletter. The weekly newsletter has a ton of great information. I cover fertility in the news, hot takes on recent topics. I answer some of your fertility questions, provide some of my favorite plant-based recipes, overall other things that I love or things that are going on and just keeping everybody in the loop. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. All right. Well, endometriosis itself is essentially an inflammatory disease, and it's very common in women of reproductive age, and it's one of the major causes of infertility. So if we think about the prevalence, and this is of people we know because diagnosis is hard, studies have suggested that of people who have infertility, 25 to 50% have endometriosis, and of people who have endometriosis, 30 to 50% have infertility. So there is a huge overlap, especially in what we consider unexplained infertility because the diagnosis of endo is so difficult to make. Now, it can contribute to infertility in many different ways. And I always describe endometriosis as being on a spectrum. So endometriosis can reduce ovarian reserve both by the physical scar tissue that happens from endo, but also from inflammation. So we know that inflammation is such a big deal in the human body. You hear people talking about inflammation in all types of disease states. And of course, your reproductive system is just as susceptible to chronic inflammation as anything else. So when you think about the severity of endometriosis, we really think of endo as divided into four stages. So you'll hear people say, one, two, three, and four. Really, that is going from most mild up to most severe. 
And when we're thinking about how it can cause infertility, I always say in those early stages, we really have tons of inflammation. If you imagine an inflammatory response, it will go and form scar tissue after you have that chronic inflammation over and over. And I use terrible analogies. So let's just imagine that you have a cut on your arm and it's starting to scab over. If you pick at the scab over and over and over, causing that area to become more and more inflamed, it is going to scar. You will have a permanent change due to that chronic inflammation reaction. And we see the same thing. So endo can contribute to infertility from inflammation, from scar tissue, pelvic adhesions, changing the pelvic anatomy, blocking the fallopian tubes. We also think this inflammation can change to egg quality or to early embryo development because that embryo is developing and has to fertilize in the fallopian tube and then also potentially an implantation. So we see that the range can go from ovarian reserve to actual physical blockage to then chronic inflammation and downstream impacts on environment and toxicity and quality. To back up before we dive in to some of the specifics about endometriosis in general, what if you're listening and you say, what is endo? There is debate about the origin of endometriosis, but let's just simplify it and say this. Endometriosis is the presence of endometrial-like cells. The endometrium is the lining of the uterus. It is supposed to only be in the inside of the uterus. It is what grows with estrogen, prepares itself for implantation after you ovulate and there is progesterone, it compacts and gets ready for an embryo. And then when progesterone drops, you have a bleed. So endometriosis is the presence of this endometrial-like cell, not in the uterus, so outside the uterus. This is what we call the peritoneal cavity. So on the ovaries, under or above the uterus, anywhere against the peritoneum or the pelvic sidewalls, You can even get implants up on the diaphragm or on your intestines. And your body is so smart and it knows that this tissue should not be in this place. And so what does your body do? It sends out its immune cells and says, attack, attack, something is going on. We don't want this here. Attack, attack. And that immune reaction is really what causes this inflammation. So it's your body's way of trying to heal, just like the scab analogy. The reason why it gets all puffy and red is that your body's sending your immune system there to try to heal it, but these cells are getting stimulated by your hormones. So when you're having regular periods or trying to get pregnant, what is happening is That egg is making estrogen, and that estrogen is stimulating these endometriosis-like cells to grow and grow and grow, causing the inflammation to get worse and worse and worse. And so you get into this pattern where you want to get pregnant, yet every ovulatory cycle where you're not, your endo is getting worse. We're going to dive in to the mechanisms by which endo can impact fertility, just real quickly. And then really dive into some of these fertility treatments, what the research shows, and then at the end, I will tell you my take and how I approach this. And then the presence of a cyst inside the ovary is called an endometrioma. And that's really characteristic of severe endometriosis, meaning it has gotten so bad that now it has invaded the ovary. And how it does this is when that follicle is growing, it's growing inside its own protected area, but it must rupture in order to allow the egg to come out. That is an opening inside that follicle 
where endometriosis cells can get in there and then they love the follicle because what happens after ovulation? It turns into a corpus luteum that makes progesterone. And so suddenly it's got all of this rich blood because it's a little hormone making factory and those endocells are so, so happy. But these endometriosis cells inside those cysts, these endometriomas, they can contribute to how your ovary functions abnormally in a few different ways. So just the expanding cyst can damage ovarian tissue. It can mechanically damage it. It can decrease or change blood circulation. It can change how the tissue, how the follicles are able to grow in that tissue. And the inflammatory reaction from the presence of that endometrioma can also damage the other parts of the ovary and the follicles. And we even think that some inflammatory reactions just in the peritoneum can impact our egg quality and that decreasing inflammation is certainly one of the ways that we try to help patients with endometriosis. And of course, one of the hard things here when you start looking at endometriosis is that it's so difficult to diagnose because it is still considered a surgical diagnosis. I tell every patient, yes, it's a surgical diagnosis. However, an endometrioma is a great example where if we see an endometrioma on ultrasound, I can now diagnose you with endometriosis without doing surgery. But that's a very late stage. So there can sometimes be signs on physical exam, such as how your uterus and your ovaries feel on bimanual exam. You could sometimes feel these hard areas of implantation if it's in the posterior cul-de-sac or behind the uterus. Sometimes the uterus is angled in such a position it makes us suspicious or your ovaries appear stuck or scarred. So interestingly, when you do an ultrasound, the ovaries move around in the body. So I always liken them to something tethered down like a balloon with a weight on the bottom of the string. And so the balloon is going to move around and that's how the ovaries are most of the time. What happens with endo if you get that scarring is the ovary might get stuck somewhere, specifically back behind the uterus as a common place. So when I do an ultrasound and I see your ovaries, they actually usually move in response to the pressure from the ultrasound. And if they're not doing that or they're in a strange place and they do not look dynamic, then I'm worried that there is scar tissue and one of the top causes of scar tissue is in fact endometriosis. We also can't diagnose endo based on symptoms because there's such a variety of presentation. Classic, classic symptoms are going to be pain due to this inflammation right? Inflammation is pain. Just like if you're scratching at that scab, it's going to hurt. So inflammation equals pain specifically at the time of your period. So very painful periods, your period should not be debilitating or keep you from your normal activities, pain with intercourse, especially deep penetration, not just insertional pain specifically, but positional or deep penetration. GI changes when you're on your period. So really having that bowel irritation, and that comes from when you have those implants in the peritoneum and surrounding the intestines, that that inflammation can irritate your bowels. So those are some of the classic symptoms that we see. And this can be really tough because what happens very often is that one of the early treatments, if you have pain, is putting somebody on birth control pills. And everybody can talk online on social media about how terrible the birth control pill is. But let's just say this, 
if you have painful periods and you're young and you get put on the birth control pill and you're not ovulating because it is a contraceptive method that prevents ovulation. Remember, IUDs, progesterone mini pill, those don't always prevent ovulation, but the combined birth control pill, estrogen and progesterone prevents you from ovulating. So those lesions aren't getting stimulated and you're not ovulating. So those ovaries are not being exposed to that potential endometrioma formation from getting those cells inside. And then when you stop the pill, suddenly you start ovulating again. And if you have endometriosis underlying, it is going to get stimulated again. So often this diagnosis is really delayed until you're trying to get pregnant because now you're not on any type of contraception and the true nature of your period is going to be revealed. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual is essential for women 18 and plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their Essential for Women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry-leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com A-A-W for 25% off. So getting to the diagnosis is hard and there's such a delay in diagnosis. I think it takes on average seven years to get diagnosed. And even though I gave you the stats earlier, it's about 10% of all women are going to have endometriosis. So that's a huge portion of our population who has difficulty getting diagnosed for a painful inflammatory condition that impacts their fertility, which is what we're going into more. So just like endometriosis impacts ovarian function, vascularity, and potentially egg quality, it does definitely impact your ovarian reserve or the number of eggs you have. I use the analogy that you can imagine inside your ovary is a vault where all your eggs are kept. And every month you have a group of eggs that comes out of that vault. From that group, one egg ovulates and the rest of them die. And then the next month, another group comes out. Everybody's born with a different number of eggs and everybody runs out at a different pace. But certain things can get inside the vault. Chemotherapy, smoking cigarettes, 
and endometriosis. So even just the inflammation from the endometriosis, but most specifically, the endometriomas. That inflammation at the level of the ovary is so intense that we know that in people who have an endometrioma, they have a lower antral follicle count on that side than the side without. And this is more pronounced when we look at people who have other types of cysts. So you have an ovarian cyst without inflammation. So it's not an endometrioma and you don't see the profound difference that you do in patients with endometriosis. We also know that your blood test AMH, which is a blood test for how many eggs you have before surgery is lower in patients with severe endometriosis than with patients who have other types of ovarian cysts. And so we know that AMH levels do drop with the severity of your endometriosis. And this is very important because your ovarian reserve is telling us how long you might have to conceive, but also, and most importantly, the number of eggs we can get in an IVF cycle. And we know that IVF outcomes are going to be directly correlated with how many eggs you get and your age. So if you potentially are going to need IVF, you're going to want to intervene when you have the most eggs available because that's going to give you a higher chance of getting the outcome that you're looking for. And to drive that home even more, we know that it's not just the presence gives you a one-time drop of your ovarian reserve, but that when observed over time, the magnitude of the natural drop in ovarian reserve over time is intensified in patients with endometriosis, meaning they have a faster decline in their ovarian reserve than in healthy control patients. So those are a very big deal. Now, despite some of the scariness, not everybody with endometriosis has trouble getting pregnant. So when you look at patients who are under age 35, women with endometriosis are twice as likely to have infertility than those without, but they still do get pregnant. The monthly rate of getting pregnant in that group is 2 to 10%, and your age-related norm is about 15 to 20%. And the worse the disease is, the lower the monthly rate of natural conception. With zero intervention, so just keep on trying to get pregnant, about 50% of people with stage 1 or 2 endo will get pregnant. But if you have stage 3 or above, you have moderate endo, it's going to be less than a fourth who are going to get pregnant naturally. And with stage 4 or the most severe endometriosis, it's even less than that. It's only a few people who will actually get pregnant. So let's dive into what can we do. The reality is when it comes to endometriosis, somebody is going to try to understand the stage of life you're in. We're mostly talking about trying to get pregnant because are there things that we do or sometimes things that we do if you are not trying to get pregnant? Yes. In general, you have medical and surgical treatment. So medical treatments can include the oral contraceptive pill, so the combined pill with estrogen and progesterone, progesterone alone options, aromatase inhibitors like letrozole, and GnRH agonists. This is a medication called Lupron. The take-home message in all of those options is that they need to be used in a way that prevents ovulation, prevents ovarian function. And not everything's the same, meaning a Mirena IUD is a progesterone-based option, but it doesn't prevent ovulation in everybody. However, a high-dose progesterone option might. So what you're using really needs to be thought with the goal of what you're trying to do, and that is all stop ovulation. Surgical treatments, different idea, right? What you're trying to do with surgery is 
confirm that you have the disease if you don't know, because that's the only way you get a diagnosis. And you're trying to take away those actual symptoms because you are removing the lesions. There are variations, meaning are you going to excise? Are you going to ablate? What is actually happening to the endo? There's risks with surgery, right? You can have surgical complications. And when anatomy is distorted, such as endometriosis, scar tissue, you have a higher risk of surgical complications. We know that there's a decrease in ovarian reserve after you operate on the ovary. And then you have the result of what if you get scar tissue from the surgery? That can happen from any surgery. And in some cases, you're actually delaying getting to fertility treatment because you're having the surgery and you're trying to recover from it. So surgical options nowadays are mostly laparoscopic, which is a camera through a small port, or robotic, which is the same thing, except you have some better manipulation from multiple laparoscopic ports and a surgeon is controlling it from a console in the room. Laparoscopy, ultimately, or robotic approach, fast recovery, it's a day surgery. And in many patients, you can get an improvement in your symptoms. However, as I already said, surgical treatment is associated with the possibility of decreasing ovarian reserve or injuring the ovary. When you strip an endometrioma, you're really trying to get rid of it. You can't just drain it. You have to really pull it. It's quite aggressive from the good ovarian tissue and you can damage the good ovarian tissue or there might not be enough left. You might lose an entire ovary and we just don't know what's going to happen in surgery until you are there versus other types of cysts. Endometriomas are more inflammatory. We already determined that. And removing endometriomas does result in a decrease in your AMH levels after surgery and does result in a long-term progressive decline that is faster than other patients. But does surgery, does removing endometriosis, does taking out scar tissue, does that help you get pregnant? The short answer is it might help in minimal or mild endometriosis at stage one or two, which is mostly that inflammatory stage, that earlier stage. But if we look at all endometriosis and we say from surgery date three years, so within three years from having surgery, 47% of people will be pregnant. IVF cycles are excluded, so this is not using IVF, so we'll say natural pregnancy or IUI, ovulation induction. However, if we categorize that out and you had moderate stage three endometriosis, so it's only 33% of people and 0% of people were pregnant in the stage four group. So we have to put this in context of the full picture. If you're already older, if you already have low ovarian reserve, if your partner has poor sperm counts, does it really make sense to go through surgery and try to get pregnant if the cumulative rate is going to be 47% at three years? And it certainly doesn't make sense if you're going to be in that stage three or four group. All right, so when it comes to IUI, so let's move on to IUI and other fertility-based treatments. When we have IUI, that's taking the sperm, putting it in a catheter, and putting it into the uterus. Many people are attracted to this option because it's simpler and it costs less than IVF. Now, if you have surgically diagnosed stage one or two endometriosis, then it does appear if you're going to do IUI, stimulating the ovaries with Clomid or Letrozole or a gonadotropin with the IUI is likely reasonable versus IUI alone. But we do know that people with one or two minimal or mild endo have a lower pregnancy rate, 
with the combined controlled ovarian stimulation and IUI than those with unexplained infertility. Remember, if you have unexplained infertility, your chance of pregnancy with controlled ovarian hyperstimulation and IUI is at best going to be 8 to 10%. So if you have stage 1 or 2 endo and you say, I don't want to do surgery, I just want to do IUI, it's going to be lower than 8 to 10%. However, if you do surgery first and then you try IUI with ovulation induction, then the live birth rate is essentially similar to that of the unexplained. So you are getting the benefit showing us that surgery does decrease inflammation and improve the pregnancy rate, but you're not getting higher than that 8 to 10%, and that's with surgery. So a lot of people are not putting patients with unexplained infertility through surgery first because no matter what, with conservative treatment, you're going to have a less than 10% chance of success at getting pregnant with that cycle. And very often what the most probable scenario is, is that you are going to delay care. So when you look at stage three and four, the recommendation is not to attempt IUI. There's typically severe pelvic anatomy distortion, and by the nature of getting that diagnosis, you have quite severe disease. IVF is the recommendation. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a Caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners. So visit carawayhome.com slash A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. All right, so let's talk about IVF. First of all, with IVF, it does look like that if your ovarian reserve is impacted, which we know can happen with the increased severity of the disease, you are likely to get less eggs per cycle. That doesn't mean that you can't get pregnant or have success. Part of IVF is always about understanding your expectations for your scenario. What's your ovarian reserve? How many eggs do you have? How do you optimize outcomes? 
Studies have demonstrated that doing surgery before the egg retrieval cycle in severe cases of IVF does not make a difference in pregnancy rate or live birth rate or if you are getting pregnant. So I think that that is important. And often I will have patients say, okay, I could do surgery and then this lesser aggressive treatment and get a pregnancy rate at max 10%, or I could try to go and do IVF and try to get pregnant faster and potentially have the added benefit of freezing embryos so I still have an opportunity to have another child in the future. If that is a part of your family planning goals and you're worried about the rate of decline of your ovarian reserve or the progression of the disease because it's going to be years before baby two happens because we're just trying for baby now. And just to drive the point home, there was a big review comparing IVF between women who had endometriomas with no surgery versus those who had the endometrioma excised before surgery. And they essentially had the same number of eggs retrieved, pregnancy rates, live birth rates. So no evidence that doing cystectomy, taking out endometriomas, or doing surgical excision of deep infiltrating endometriosis if the plan is to go to IVF. Further and very important, secondary surgeries are done for pain only. Fertility outcomes are worse after second surgery. So if you had a surgery, you had your endo taken out, you did IUI and you got pregnant and you're trying for your second baby and your endo is back, doing surgery on this point to try to get pregnant again, you are now going to have lower outcomes. So second line conservative surgery does decrease ovarian reserve. And even if endometriosis has come back after primary surgery, the only goal of secondary surgery should really be because your pain or your symptoms are interfering with your quality of life. And that's a valid reason to have surgery, but we shouldn't do it with the idea that it's going to help our fertility because it's not, and it might heard it at that point. Further points about IVF. Everybody with endometriosis is really different. I think that's important to know, meaning stage one to four, very different disease parameters, which are actually impacting your fertility, depending on where you are on the autoimmune and the inflammatory pathway versus the anatomical distortion, endometrioma, part of the disease. That said, I think number one, decreasing inflammation is a big part of the picture. Number two, I think choosing IVF protocols in line with that are really smart. And I do want to say this, I will often not diagnose patients. A large portion of patients with unexplained infertility have endo. If you have unexplained and you have symptoms, I will very often tell a patient, we are making the presumption that you have endometriosis. And I put that in the chart, presumed endometriosis. And I make cycle protocols based on that assumption in my mind. Now your stimulation protocol, most studies suggest that you can do whatever is appropriate. If you still have high ovarian reserve, that's going to be an antagonist cycle. If you have lower ovarian reserve, I think there's a lot of benefit to a Lupron cycle. Where most of the debate comes in is what's going to happen with the embryo transfer. So there have been a few studies just trying to guide us. And one looked at frozen embryo transfer cycles between people who had endometriosis and those who did not. And these were all blastocyst transfers. Importantly in the study, patients with endo and those without had the same rate of aneuploidy or abnormal embryos based on their age. And the implantation and pregnancy rates in these patients were the same, including live birth. 
So we didn't see endo patients having higher miscarriages or lower pregnancy rates or more abnormal embryos. And I think that's very important. All of these transfers were programmed transfers or controlled cycles, giving somebody estrogen and intramuscular progesterone in this practice. So it doesn't appear that endometriosis is necessarily impacting the endometrial level or embryo implantation in everyone. That said, there is a subset of patients with recurrent implantation failure and endometriosis that probably do have either some higher levels of inflammation or some endometrial response. And studies are telling us that a protocol that is treating this is going to be the best for the transfer. And this might be trying to do your first excisional surgery. That could be a treatment. Trying to do two months of Depo-Lupron. That could be a treatment. And trying to do two months of Depo-Lupron plus an aromatase inhibitor like letrozole prior to the embryo transfer. And that's honestly my favorite option for recurrent implantation failure with known or suspected endometriosis. It's a long protocol, I'm not going to lie. That is two months of suppression. I am suppressing your body completely. You're making no estrogen. That's how we're really dropping that inflammation because any of those lesions are not being stimulated at all, at all. But you're going to feel estrogen low for two months, so I warn every patient that. Again, this is a very specific studies looking at patients with recurrent implantation failure and endo, in patients with endo versus not, and not that history, it doesn't look like there's any difference in live birth rates. Okay, so overall, I just want to tell you my approach. I view, one, endometriosis is underdiagnosed, especially in the patients who are having a hard time conceiving. In the ideal world, you know about your endo earlier, so that if you choose to, you can do some type of ovarian suppression to hopefully prevent progression of the disease. That's your choice or potentially undergo surgery at an earlier stage so that you are more symptom-free. Now, when you try to conceive, and what I tell most of my patients with endo is that if I have my way, you're either trying to get pregnant or you're preventing your body from ovulating. That does change a little bit if I have frozen embryos in the bank. Depending on the entire picture of your infertility, are your tubes open? How is the sperm? What is your age? How is your ovarian reserve? Do you carry any autosomal recessive genetic diseases? That is going to help me understand, should we walk the road of excisional surgery plus ovulation induction IUI, or should we consider going straight to IVF? And honestly, I think that should be a very personalized approach. I will tell you by the time people land in my office, they are usually ready to progress more aggressively to treatment. And I am doing less and less IUI cycles in patients with endo because less than 10% is just less than 10%. Your live birth rate with a genetically normal embryo should be 65% per embryo. And that is just so different than 10%. When I do IVF, my preference is if your ovarian reserve allows or it makes sense to utilize a Lupron-based cycle. I think endo, we know, is suppressed with Lupron. That's my personal fave. I have patients with endo who have amazing high ovarian reserve, and then a Lupron cycle doesn't make sense because you have risks of ovarian hyperstimulation or you're going to get triggered too early, so you can't do that for everybody. And I think it probably doesn't matter as much for egg quality for the majority of people. Also, I recommend that we take supplements and vitamins to try to decrease inflammation, and we try to decrease inflammation in our life and in our world. We eat a diet full of fruits and veggies, 
whole foods. We do not eat refined or processed foods. We don't smoke marijuana or cigarettes. We don't drink alcohol or we severely limit it during the time of our cycle. We avoid toxins in and on our body, in our cookware, and in our products. And I like supplements like CoQ10, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin D, and acetylcysteine. That's kind of my go-to little packet of supplements for patients with endo. Obviously, with a prenatal, we always take a prenatal. Then we counsel based on our goals, age, and the other fertility factors. Often, as I said, skipping IUI and going towards IVF sooner, largely because I've seen that ovary, once it gets that endometrioma in it, progress very quickly. When I do an embryo transfer, I like to use Lupron in endometriosis patients. The only exceptions is if you've had prior uterine surgery and you have a very thin lining, history of Asherman, and maybe it's very hard to get the lining to grow. Sometimes those patients need a modified cycle, a modified natural, they need gonadotropins or letrozole, and it's just what they need, so you can't change it. So we really have to personalize this, but if everything is equal, I like a cycle with Lupron. That's my bread and butter. If we're getting to the point where you're not having an embryo implanting, now I'm starting to get worried that you have that combination of recurrent implantation failure with endometriosis, meaning your endo is active in your endometrium in some way. And I really love a protocol that combines GnRH agonist Lupron plus letrozole for two months prior to your cycle. So there's no right or wrong way. And I think when you listen to some of this literature, you understand that there are some things that don't make sense. Recurrent surgeries over and over again is not going to help your fertility. Taking out endometriomas at surgery is not going to help your fertility. Potentially surgery with mild disease can temporarily improve your fertility, but you're not getting it any higher than 10% for conservative treatment. And so I think that that's just really important for us to be transparent on where we are, what our goals are, and what we want to do moving forward. Besides the things I already mentioned when it comes to trying to decrease inflammation, I do want to take a minute and say people really stress about what they're eating, the supplements they're taking, and if they're drinking alcohol or if they're not. And I think it's really important to do what you can, especially if you're investing the money, the time that fertility treatments can take. But sometimes the simpler things actually matter the most. When does your body heal from inflammation? When does it bite inflammation? At night when you sleep. If you're not sleeping enough, you are not going to be able to kind of get your body in that place where it is more healed. So just as important as other things is getting a good seven to eight hours of sleep, trying to lower your stress levels, and not by stressing about being stressed, but by saying, hey, I'm taking control of this or knowing yourself. I, me, Natalie, I like sitting outside drinking a cup of coffee before my kids wake up, going on walks with a dog with nobody around me, short yoga, very mild yoga stretching in the morning, and I like meditations at night. Those things really help me. I have friends who also like love different things. They love acupuncture. They love journaling. I think those things are all extremely valuable. So find out what is going to give you that uh, feeling and lean into that. All right. Well, overall, 
If you have endometriosis, half the struggle is getting the diagnosis. So please do not hesitate to be an advocate for yourself. If you have painful periods or pain with intercourse, that is prohibiting you from living the life you want to live. That is a huge red flag and you deserve somebody who's going to take that pain seriously and talk to you about now and talk to you about the future if you want to have a family one day. Now we're going to turn to For Fertility's Sake, our weekly Q&A segment where you ask questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD and I answer them here on the podcast on the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter and some of them on Instagram. All right, would you do a different embryo transfer protocol if you had luteal phase defect? I would not because when we do embryo transfers, I always override your natural system. So my protocols are either going to be what we consider a controlled or programmed cycle. This is essentially where your body is using estrogen to grow the lining, and then you're replacing all the progesterone with an intramuscular progesterone, or a modified natural where I'm getting you to ovulate, and then I'm triggering you when that follicle gets big enough. Typically, the ovulation medication is letrozole or an FSH, and then I'm supplementing with vaginal progesterone. So I'm not really worried about a luteal phase defect when I'm doing an embryo transfer. And the only transfer type I would shy away from would be a full-on natural cycle with no progesterone supplementation or nothing. How long after a hysteroscopy can you do an FET? A hysteroscopy is when we put a camera inside the uterus and we can do a lot of different things. So the short answer is it really depends on what we're doing as to when you can do your transfer. If it's just a diagnostic, put the camera in, you might start the transfer protocol the next day, the next week, so immediately. If you're removing a polyp or something small, same thing typically applies. However, if it's a huge fibroid, your uterus is actually going to need to recover for a while, or if it's a lot of scar tissue, you may have an entire hormone protocol that you have to go through, and then your doctor may want to do another test in the office, like a saline sonogram. That's typically how I am for septums or large scar tissue. So, That is a fantastic question. It depends on what you are having the hysteroscopy for. And I would ask your doctor, hey, how fast are we going to get started after this surgery? Some clinics do hysteroscopy diagnostic in the office before every transfer starts. So it might be immediate, but that's a really important thing that you should know because time is so important. Do uterine polyps need to be removed? Yes, they do. Endometrial polyps are typically benign projections of endometrial tissue. Occasionally, they can be cancerous, but they do need to be removed and sent off to pathology to be inspected before you do an embryo transfer. They also can cause local inflammation, and that can make it harder for the embryo to implant. A natural FET or a medicated FET success rates. So as we said, there are two basic protocol types. The short answer is that a natural FET with supplemental vaginal progesterone, whether you're following a natural follicle or inducing it with letrozole or gonadotropins, has the same live birth rates as a controlled or a medicated cycle as long as the controlled or medicated cycle has intramuscular or IM progesterone. And I know nobody loves IM progesterone, but you should be taking it either daily or 
every third day with vaginal progesterone twice a day. You should not be doing controlled or program cycles with vaginal progesterone alone. They have a significantly lower live birth rate. So on a whole, equal if we're doing the optimized programmed or controlled, if I put those people who had a controlled cycle with a vaginal proj into the whole controlled cycle group, then that group is lower. But the take-home message is they are the same as long as you are using the right type of progesterone for the medicated or program cycle. I am 39.5. Is there a big difference to freeze embryos now versus waiting till 40? In general, six months do not make a difference for the majority of people. That being said, you start to get on the very accelerated curve from 38 and on, meaning what happens from age 38 to 42 is you have a drastic drop in the number of eggs you have and their quality. At age 38, you have about a third of your eggs genetically normal. At 40, it's going to be closer to 20 to 25%. At 42, it's going to be closer to 10 to 15%. So you are on the ride at that point. So it's not that there's a huge difference for everybody in those six months. And if you need that time to save up or you have a big life event and that's the best you can do, that's the best you can do. But very often the future is so unknown that it makes the best sense to proceed as soon as you can with things like embryo freezing at an older age. What are your thoughts on estrogen priming for a more gradual growth of follicles during IVF? I'm not opposed to it and I definitely use this cycle sometimes, but on the whole, I find that it is harder to get a synchronized cohort of eggs with estrogen priming. The suppression is just a little bit less than other options. And so your body naturally, remember, wants to ovulate that one egg. And when you're doing estrogen priming, especially if you're older or you have low ovarian reserve, I will find that sometimes that stubborn ovary is just not allowing those eggs to synchronize. But when you're trying to find a protocol for somebody and you're trying different things, this is certainly an approach I use if I'm not getting the growth or what I am expecting with other options. It's rarely my first line approach. Every IVF doctor is very specific on what we like. Doesn't mean I don't use it. It's in my arsenal, but it's not usually my go-to. All right. Well, I hope you like this week's edition of For Fertility's Sake, FFS. Again, you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Thank you guys so much for all of your support of the As A Woman podcast. I can't believe we have over 3 million downloads. I am just honored to have your time and have you listening. I know endometriosis and fertility is a hot topic, mostly because it's hard and people don't talk about it enough. So if you have questions, send them through and hopefully we can be a place where you can learn more. Thanks friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.